When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. sermon at the temple completed, where do you go from here? Well, in Jesus's case, among the Nephites, he commends everything that he's just taught them and then reminds them of what it means to them and who they are specifically. If you look at chapter 15, verse 1, when Jesus had ended these sayings, he cast his eyes round about on the multitude and said unto them, Behold, ye have heard the things which I taught before I ascended to my Father. You're all caught up. You have learned what I taught my people in Israel. Therefore, whoso remembereth these sayings of mine and doeth them, him will I raise up at the last day. Remember he told those 12 chosen Nephite disciples, you need to remember these things so that you can continue to teach them. Well, the people, that initial audience, they need to remember them too. So they do them. King Benjamin ended his speech that way. If you believe these things, see that ye do them. But then Jesus notices something. Verse 2, when Jesus had said these words, he perceived, this is a perceptive teacher, reading the facial expressions and body language of his students. He perceived that there were some among them who marveled and wondered. About what specifically? They wondered what he would concerning the law of Moses. For they understood not the saying that old things had passed away and that all things had become new. They didn't quite get it. Now, it's easy for us to judge them unrighteously, thinking, come on, you finally got freed from this. But when this is everything that you've lived for the last thousand years, I mean, if it took conference talks and all kinds of messages from prophets and apostles in our day to go from three-hour church to two, or to go from home and visiting teaching to ministering? Imagine the wondering and marveling, wait a minute, what does this mean for those old things? Change can be hard, especially if we approach it simplistically. You see, the simplistic approach to change suggests that old ways are wrong. That's why we've abandoned them. That makes the past a problem. But a more thoughtful approach to change would say that the new builds on and grows out of the old. This is passed as prelude. I've seen both among members of the church whenever a change is made. Some using the moment to dismiss the past and others using it to honor it. I happen to serve my mission under two different mission presidents. I had one year with each. And their administrative approaches, their personalities could not have been more different. My first mission president was a big, tough Texan, barrel-chested cowboy that used to run the church's cattle ranches and didn't change a lot when he shifted from cattle to missionaries. He'd bring his bullwhip to zone conference every once in a while and crack it as he taught us about obedience. 
And we obeyed out of fear sometimes. My second mission president was the most soft-spoken, humble, he was a native Puerto Rican, just kind-hearted soul. And he didn't worry about being a stickler on the rules. Not that he didn't care about obedience. He just had a feeling that we would continue to obey as we had before, but that we do it out of love, not out of duty, certainly not out of fear. I'll admit, a lot of us feared that he'd get walked all over, but he ended up being right. Honestly, in many ways, my first mission president got us up to that elevation of chapter 12, be perfect in your obedience. And then mission president number two helped us through chapter 13, purifying our motives for doing so. It was amazing to watch those two, one after the other. But it was interesting to watch some of the older missionaries that had lived under the regime of our first mission president and felt like they had emerged into this realm of openness and goodness and flexibility under our second mission president. In fact, our second mission president, he was Latino, happened to have a first name of Jesus. And they couldn't help but compare their days under the law of Moses finally coming into the gospel of Jesus. And in a way, they ended up throwing our first mission president under the bus. And even at the time, something about that felt wrong to me. Since then, having learned more about the history of the island and both missionaries and the church itself, I realized that each of those men was the man for their season. God knew exactly what he was doing. And we had to have them in that order. They would have walked all over my second mission president if we had not established the level of obedience under the first. This was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The change that we saw was not a repudiation of the past. It was a recognition that all that happened there was absolutely necessary. Those missionaries that were mature enough to recognize that loved both the old and the new. And when we see changes happening in the church, I hope we have similar maturity. Now, what the Lord does here is amazing in trying to help them navigate this transition. Because it is hard. He gets it too. Notice what he says in 3 and 4. Marvel not that I said unto you that old things had passed away, and that all things had become new. Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Now, he'd said that before, right? No more sacrifice of animals. Now it's a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But he starts all of this with reassurance. Marvel not. It's going to be okay. Don't freak out that the law was fulfilled. And please don't dismiss the past as if it were some kind of problem or mistake. Honestly, here's the question you need to grapple with. Can both Moses and Jesus be right can both of my mission presidents be correct in the approach that they took to leading our mission? Can each be correct for their individual time and place? I think sometimes we, we don't think hard enough about these kinds of issues, and we just assume, yep, those are, they don't agree, so they're mutually exclusive. But Moses and Jesus got along fine. Jehovah called Moses, after all. And Moses followed Jehovah's commandments. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Can both Joseph Smith and Wilfred Woodruff be right about plural marriage? Wilfred Woodruff thought so. In fact, in issuing the manifesto, he even said to the saints that were like, whoa, whoa, can, again, it's very similar to this. I don't know if these changes are right. And he basically said, I'm older than almost everyone in the church. 
And I knew Joseph and Brigham better than almost anyone in the church. And I'm about to go see them soon. Do you really think I'm going to go completely against them, both in the letter and the spirit of what they established? When I'm about to go face the music? See, this is the power of having a scriptural canon, everything together within one set of books, because it suggests that all these prophets get along, that Old Testament and New Testament, that these apostles and prophets can reach across the divide and find themselves agreeing in principle on the things that they taught, even when their practices happen to be different. Moses would say, like Amulek did, all that I taught was pointing forward to the coming of Christ. All this sacrifice pointing to that great and last sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus would say the same thing in reverse. Search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. I've even seen some detractors, former Latter-day Saints, take President Nelson to task for changing our approach to the official name of the church, accusing him of condemning all of his predecessors when he said that it is not wise to use the shortened version. Well, those previous prophets didn't have a problem with it. So who's wrong? President Nelson or President Hinckley? Certainly they two can't agree with each other. Can we not be okay with different approaches at different times and both of them are correct? Both can be inspired from heaven? Again, this is the principle of a cloud of witnesses, of canonical consistency, of proving contraries. I've seen all kinds of people freaking out, not just marveling and wondering, but really freaking out over changes the church has made as far as policies are concerned. Well, they went this way in 2015 and this way in 2019. Oh, what's going on? Can we not step back and see both of those underneath a higher unifying principle? Watching church members veer to one side, and so they try to pull the ship back a little bit this way, and then watching people overcorrect, and so they try to pull it back this way? It's constant course correction, all with the same end in mind. This goes back to the whole, it's not destroying, it's fulfilling. In fact, the way Jesus begins 3515 is in the same spirit of what he said earlier in chapter 12 along those lines. I'm not destroying anything. I'm not throwing Moses under the bus. I'm fulfilling his mission. I'm building upon his foundation. I'm actually doing exactly what he would do if he were here. We get along fine. From verse 5 to verse 10, I don't know if I've ever seen it done better. Trying to help people navigate a transition from old things to new. Helping us see that there are some things that are different, but some things that have stayed the same. Different means, for example, while pursuing identical ends. Different programs or policies or procedures or practices, all following the same principles and purposes. So as we go through these verses, keep an eye on what's different and what's constant. Verse 5, Behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore the law in me is fulfilled, for I have come to fulfill the law, therefore it hath an end. You see the repetition of I am he? I was there the first time. I'm still here the second time. You do have continuity as far as the ultimate source. I am the Jehovah behind the law of Moses. I am that I am. I'm also the Jesus of the New Testament 
who atoned and sacrificed to fulfill that law and usher in the gospel that it had always been pointing to. So I am is the ultimate constant. The law was the past, but the covenant is the past, present, and future. The law is old and specific, but the covenant is new and everlasting. It's universal. New only because it's been renewed. But it's the same covenant that's always existed. That is something a constant throughout it all. So you see what he said in verse 5? I'm here. I've been here the whole time. I'm behind both approaches. I'm not contradicting myself. Both the law and the gospel fit under this umbrella, this higher unifying principle of the covenant. Do I change my approach to parenting? You bet. As children are small and then grow up and become adults, my parenting style has to change right along with them. But my goals for them haven't changed. My love for them, my purpose is behind that parenting. Whether it's law or it's gospel, it's all covenant and it's all Christ. In verse 6, behold, I do not destroy the prophets. That hasn't changed. As many as have not been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. Believe me, I vindicate my servants constantly. Verse 7, because I said unto you that old things have passed away, I do not destroy that which hath been spoken concerning things which are to come. So those prophecies and promises are still in place. Verse 8, behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled. That's why it's the higher unifying principle. It was in force under the law. It is in force under the gospel. I should actually flip that. Both the law and the gospel are in force under the covenant. The covenant which I've made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. So don't lose sight of the covenant, the big picture, the ends, as you worry about the law, which is the little picture, the means. Verse 9 and 10 then, Behold, I am the law. The law is me, and I'm the light. In other words, I'm the light by which you should be reading the law. If you've been interpreting it in a way that doesn't point back to me, back to the covenant, then you've been misinterpreting it. You've been reading it under the wrong light. But if I am the light by which you read the law, then you'll see its continuity in Christ from start to finish. I am the interpretive lens through which you should be reading the law. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees, that verse I just quoted. You search the scriptures. You look back to the law like nobody else. You've got the thing memorized. But you search it because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. But guess what? They're just means. And I'm the end. They are they which testify of me. I am the law and the light by which you should view it. Paul got that perfectly. Well, he got it once he got it. Once he saw the light in the risen Lord, he knew by what light to look at the law. He says to the Corinthians that their minds were blinded. And here's why. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Even unto this day when Moses is read, that is, when you look at the law, the veil is upon their heart. 
No wonder they can't see it. Veil makes it hard to see. Minds being blinded makes it hard to see. It's all too dark. So how do we bring light into it? When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Once you see that the law was always pointing to the Lord, once he becomes the light by which you read the law, then everything's fine. There is continuity. It is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. You'll see him everywhere. Look for the atonement in the law, and you'll see that they are practically synonymous once you have the eyes to see, once you have the light by which to look at the law. And Jesus is both. So he continues in verse 9, Look unto me, see that light, and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Don't stop early. Don't stop with the old version of things. Endure through change unto the end. Verse 10, Behold, I have given unto you the commandments, therefore keep my commandments. Is there a difference between the commandments and my commandments? It might seem like it. Well, no, those old commandments were from Moses. No, he was simply the one receiving the tablets. Christ was behind those commandments, and he is behind these ones. And the need to obey them is constant. This is the law and the prophets. Obedience. It doesn't have to be obedience to specific things, but the law of obedience continues on. Those laws and those prophets, they truly testified of me start to finish anyway. I love what the Lord is doing here for them and for us as we endure times of transition. Don't lose sleep over changes to what the scriptures themselves call a law of outward performances. The inward purposes are still the same. Don't lose sleep over changes to policies or programs or procedures or what I call packaging. We've been through a lot of them fairly recently. Do you lose sleep over the change of mission age or the length of church or how we minister to one another or how the churches run, the composition of councils? How about participation in priesthood ordinances? Who gets to witness baptisms, for example? Who gets to perform baptisms for the dead? Involvement, men and women, boys and girls. It's amazing, some of these changes. Even things as significant as the temple endowment itself. Please learn to distinguish between contents and packaging, between presentation and the food that's actually on the plate. In some ways, it's understandable that we get so caught up in changes because those are the things that seem to stand out to us. But look deeper at what has stayed the same or look higher at what are the overarching unifying principles. Again, did you notice the ones he lists in this passage? The need for obedience and endurance has not changed. That's verse 9 and 10. The need for prophets hasn't changed. That's verse 6. Prophecies and promises are still in effect. That's verse 7. The covenant is still in place. That's verse 5 and verse 8. The light is still on. That's verse 9. And I am still here, the Lord says, repeatedly. That's verse 5 and verse 9 and verse 10. You see the constancy amidst this change? Practice this with other changes you can think of. Do it with plural marriage, for example. What didn't change? 
the law of chastity did not change. Reread section 132 and keep an eye out for that. The sanctity of marriage and the importance of the family did not change. Pre-plural marriage, during plural marriage, post-manifesto, end of plural marriage. Those priorities held true. The law of obedience and the role of agency are eternal principles that apply across the chronology. The significance of priesthood keys, the centrality of temple ordinances, all of those were constant. And most importantly, and this applies through any and every change, the wisdom and love of God, the atonement and grace of Jesus Christ, and the confirming witness of the Holy Ghost, those truths applied across the chronology as well. Do you remember those beautiful words from Be Still My Soul? They apply so perfectly in situations like these. In every change, he faithful will remain. If we can trust in that, in every change, he, I am he, I am he, I am the law, I am the light, I'm still here, behind it all. In every change, he faithful will remain. If we can believe that, and trust him through every transition, then the following lines in that hymn are so much easier to accept. Leave to thy God to order and provide. Just leave it to him. He knows what he's doing. And the following verse, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. I have no idea what changes will yet come, but I'm open to them. In fact, far more than open to them, I'm excited to see what comes because I know that I will see the hand of God behind them. He faithful will remain. He's guided the past beautifully. The future is in good hands my hope in him and my confidence is unshaken. Now, once Jesus has established this in the minds and hearts of his hearers, he then teaches them in an amazing way who they are. From verse 11 to verse 21, he explains that they are his other sheep. Now, in 11, it says that he specifically addresses this to the 12 whom he has chosen. So he's shifting back and forth between the general and the specific audiences. But ultimately, the messages will be for all. Verse 12, ye are my disciples. Ye are a light unto this people. Uses that same phrase we saw back in chapter 12. And who is this people? They're a remnant of the house of Joseph. Again, he's not just going back to Lehi. He takes it back a few generations. He goes all the way back to Joseph. That way, we know we're talking house of Israel context. And whenever you talk house of Israel in the Book of Mormon, keep an eye out for scattering and gathering, because that's what it's all about. But by calling them the house of Joseph, he's also reminding them, you're not the whole house of Israel which itself is not the entire seed of Abraham, which itself is not the entire human race. You're part of a part of a part, but a part that I know personally, a part that I have promised this land to, verse 13, this is the land of your inheritance, and the Father hath given it unto you. Now 14 and 15 he explains, but nobody knows this. 
14, not at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell it unto your brethren at Jerusalem. And 15, neither at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell unto them concerning the other tribes of the house of Israel, whom the Father hath led away out of the land. So the Jews back in Jerusalem don't know about the Nephites, and they don't know the specifics about the lost tribes of Israel either. All I was left to do was give them a hint. In verse 16, this is what the Father did command me. I love that in 14, 15, 16, he just keeps going back to the Father's commands. I do what he asks, and this is what he asked of me. 17, tell them that other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd, which is exactly what Jesus told them back in John chapter 10, verse 16. Now every Latter-day Saint worth his salt, when he looks at that verse, his eyes light up and they think, ah, Book of Mormon. Nephites, other sheep. But we're the only Christians out there that do that when we read John chapter 10. They don't see Lehi and his family hiding behind that verse. And neither did the people that Jesus said it to originally. 18 tells us why. Because of stiff-neckedness and unbelief, they understood not my word. Therefore I was commanded to say no more of the Father concerning this thing unto them. Do you see in verse 18, the three shelves I talked about back in 3 Nephi chapter 2, Revelation past, Revelation present, and Revelation future, and that the Nephites in that time period doubted what had been given in the past, took for granted what was the signs that were being given in the present, and didn't believe that any future signs would be given at all. Well, do you see the same thing here? Their stiff-neckedness and unbelief in the present led them to misunderstand or not understand the word that he had given them in the past. And therefore, he was commanded not to give them any additional word concerning this thing in the future. It's amazing how this past, present, and future all are interrelated. Another way to say that, lack of faith and humility in the present, lack of faith, that's the unbelief, lack of humility, that's the stiff-neckedness, led to lack of understanding of the past and lack of further light and truth in the future. Or to flip it all around, pride and doubt in the present lead to confusion over the past and ignorance of the future. That's a true principle far beyond just the specifics of what Jesus is talking about here. Pride and doubt today make me misunderstand yesterday and have no hope for tomorrow. We close ourselves off in both directions. They're doing the same. Verse 19, he continues, the Father hath commanded me, and I tell it unto you, that ye were separated from among them because of their iniquity. Theirs. That goes back to Lehi, the people driving Lehi out of Jerusalem because of their sin. Therefore, it is because of their iniquity that they know not of you. Interesting, these explanations for their ignorance. Why don't they get it? Iniquity, stiff-neckedness, unbelief. I wonder sometimes, what am I missing? And what am I misunderstanding because of my lack of faith and humility and righteousness? Are there incredible life-changing truths that I could know and I could understand if my heart and mind were in the right place? I'm sure there are. Now, he doesn't even stop there with Lehi's group, that remnant of the tribe of Joseph. There are yet other tribes that were scattered too. Verse 20 hints at them. Verily I say unto you again, that the other tribes hath the Father separated from them, and it is because of their iniquity that they know not of them. Again, our iniquity keeping us in ignorance. 
21, Verily I say unto you, that ye are they of whom I said, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. So he's clearly connecting what he said to the Jews to what he's saying here to the Nephites. You're the ones I was talking about. Them also I must bring, and here I am bringing. They shall hear my voice, and here you are hearing. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Two different continents, but one single Christ. He is the higher unifying principle, the good shepherd over all the fold. 22, they understood me not. Iniquity and ignorance always go together. But since they tried to figure it out, what they come up with, they supposed it had been the Gentiles. But they understood not that the Gentiles should be converted through their preaching. Ask Paul about that. They understood me not that I said they should hear my voice, and they understood me not that the Gentiles should not at any time hear my voice, that I should not manifest myself unto them, save it were by the Holy Ghost. I said they wouldn't hear my voice, and I meant it. They would hear my servant's voice. Now again, it is the same. But Gentiles would have to trust in my servants and in the Spirit. That's how they would come to know. One step removed, secondary sources on the way to a primary confirmation of truth. Again, higher level of belief and higher level of blessedness. This is the day of the Gentiles being ushered in. 24, on the other hand, you, house of Joseph, house of Israel, seed of Abraham, ye have both heard my voice and seen me, and ye are my sheep, and ye are numbered among those whom the Father hath given me. You are mine, if you'll make me yours. Now 15 flows seamlessly into 16, so keep reading. And verily, verily, I say unto you, that I have other sheep which are not of this land, neither of the land of Jerusalem, neither in any parts of that land round about whither I have been to minister. Now this is really where it gets exciting. You were my first concentric circle of other sheep. Well, there are yet other sheep still. Not Jews, not Nephites. We're talking lost sheep of the house of Israel. I remember once I was a TA at Divinity School in a class in American Religious History, and my professor asked me to do a lecture on Mormonism, and so I did, and then we were getting together, that was kind of lecture, then we were doing lab, and I was leading this uh, out-of-class discussion with all the students, and they were intrigued by this thought of additional scripture, and most of them were Protestant ministers in training, so sola scriptura was kind of their watchword, so additional scripture, they were, they were not sure what to make of it, but kind of intrigued by the idea. And as we got together to talk about it more, I, I honestly found myself laughing, saying, you think it's shocking that we added the Book of Mormon to the Bible? You ain't seen nothing yet. Because then we added the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And in fact, the Book of Mormon even talks about a, another additional book of Scripture, the record of God's dealings with the house of Israel, the record of the lost tribes. I seriously laughed with them and said, you know, the Book of Mormon is more like a gateway drug to additional scripture. And we just want it to keep on coming. And that's what the Lord seems to be hinting at in chapter 16. When he says one fold and one shepherd, he means a worldwide flock. And he's aware of them all. Now verse 2, this will be new to them too. They of whom I speak are they who have not as yet heard my voice. Neither have I at any time manifest myself unto them. But I have received a commandment of the Father. And like we saw in chapter 15, over and over, Christ does the commandments of his Father. I received a commandment that I shall go unto them, and that they shall hear my voice, and shall be numbered among my sheep, that there may be one fold and one shepherd. Again, that's always the goal. Therefore, I go to show myself unto them. 
Nephi hints at this way back in 2 Nephi 29. God speaks to all his children and commands them all to write things down. And someday the Jews will have the record of the Nephites. And someday the, rec- the Nephites will have the record of the Jews. Bible and Book of Mormon being exchanged cross-culturally. But then he says, and the record of the lost tribes of Israel? It's what Elder Maxwell called a triad of truth. That additional witness by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Someday the lost tribes will have the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And those who possess the Bible and Book of Mormon will also receive the record of the lost tribes. can hardly wait for that day. We'll have to add an additional year of seminary or something. We'll go on a five-year rotation through Come, Follow Me. Bring it on. See, what he's saying there in verse 3 is key. The goal has always been one fold and one shepherd. Even when I visit some and I send servants to others and I wait and visit others later, You see, this idea of concentric circles really does seem to apply. I call this the principle of exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. That's another one of those contraries that we need to prove. Because on the one hand, exclusivity, God does call chosen people. That seems very exclusive. But on the other hand, God is no respecter of persons. That's incredibly inclusive. Well, how on earth can he be both? He's proving the contraries. He's choosing a chosen people with the purpose of them choosing everyone else. He chooses the chosen to choose others to be chosen right alongside them. Does that make any sense at all? Again, he's balancing this. Think about what he said to Father Abraham, the father of the faithful, the ultimate chosen patriarch. He says to him, In thee, And in thy seed, there's exclusivity. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? That is inclusivity. Nobody's left out. We're going to have one fold, one shepherd. Even though I chose one group then, and I'm choosing another group now, and I'm going from here to there, and others will be treated differently. You see, in some ways, by setting things up with difference, in hopes of bringing it eventually to togetherness, Again, exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. It's because both the haves and the have-nots have something to learn and something to teach one another. Good things happen in both directions because of that flow. It's what wind does. It's what water does in flowing downhill. It's things in high concentration seeking equilibrium. It's exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. And the only thing that can stop it and ruin it is us standing in the way, kinking the hose, not letting the water flow, resting assured in our exclusivity. It's an occupational hazard when you're part of the chosen people, feeling, oh, well, we were chosen because we were better. No, you were chosen to choose, so go choose everyone else. Share the gospel light that you have. I want every sheep worldwide to know about the one fold that they're a part of and the one shepherd that is calling them home. I'm calling you to call them. I'm choosing you to choose them. And honestly, the moment we stop choosing others is the moment we stop being chosen ourselves. We are sheep called to be under shepherds and gather the rest of the flock. And Christ wants to make sure we get it. That's why in verse 4, he commands them to write this down. 
write these sayings after I am gone, that if it so be that my people at Jerusalem, they who have seen me and been with me in my ministry, the ones I dropped the hint to, but that never fully understood, if they do not ask the Father in my name, that they may receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost, and also of the other tribes whom they know not of, then these sayings which ye shall write shall be kept and shall be manifest unto the Gentiles, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of their seed, who shall be scattered forth upon the face of the earth because of their unbelief, that way they may be brought in or may be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer. Now that is one long verse, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds there. So let's unpack it. He's basically saying, someday they will know. They'll know who they are and whose they are. They'll be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer. That's how the verse ends, right? Now, he seems to suggest that there's two different ways to get to that knowledge. One of them is intriguing to me, right in the middle, when he says, you know, just in case they don't ask the Father to receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost or a knowledge of the other tribes. Whoa, you mean that was an option? People could have gone straight to the source. They could have asked God, Heavenly Father, please help me understand who your sheep are. Help me find your lost lambs. Help me gather scattered Israel. Help me see in others who they really are so I can let them know. With that faith, God would have answered their question. If they'd asked the Father, then they would have known through the Holy Ghost who you are, who the lost tribes of Israel are. But just in case they don't do that, write this stuff down. Record that you're my other sheep. Record that I have yet other sheep beyond that because someday these words will go to the Gentiles. Now we're talking restoration of the gospel and the gospel spreading through Gentile nations. And then through the fullness of the Gentiles, they'll be able to bring these records, these truths that the Jews could have gotten firsthand. This way they'll get it secondhand through the records that are written. That's part of the purpose of the Book of Mormon. Remember the title page. It's to remind both Jew and Gentile and Lamanites, talking every branch of the house of Israel and outside of it as well, all under the umbrella of one fold and one shepherd. But I need everyone to know the covenants of the Lord, that they're not cast off forever, to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, that he manifests himself unto all nations. All of that is in the title page. And so the Book of Mormon is serving this purpose just as Jesus said it would need to. And having first spread through Gentile nations, as the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the Gentiles will then bring the gospel in its fullness back to the house of Israel. We're here gathering scattered Israel home, right? It's happening as we speak. I talked about this in the video of Samuel the Lamanite, what the fullness of the Gentiles is all about, because his time period seems to illustrate it so beautifully because it seems like the Nephite nation had served its purpose in bringing the gospel back to the Lamanites. It's like Nephites are to Lamanites as Gentiles are to Jews. The fullness of the Nephites was passing and the gospel was returning to the Lamanites in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Well, the gospel will go from the Gentiles back to the Jews, the house of Israel, in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. It's amazing these parallels. When that happens, verse 5, then will I gather them in from the four quarters of the earth. 
And then will I fulfill the covenant which the Father hath made unto all the people of the house of Israel. By the way, that does seem to suggest that the spiritual gathering, end of verse 4, brought to a knowledge of the Redeemer, precedes the physical gathering. Then will I gather them in from the four quarters of the earth. I sometimes worry that we focus so much on geopolitical movements and the establishment of the, of the state of Israel in 1948 and thinking that's the trigger event. Well, I worry that I, the, the way I read the Book of Mormon, it really does seem to suggest that the spiritual gathering precedes and precipitates the physical gathering. Sure, I suppose that both of those things will be happening simultaneously, but don't just wait on political events. We need to be gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. That's what President Nelson has been asking. Verse 6, Blessed are the Gentiles, because of their belief in me, in and of the Holy Ghost, which witnesses unto them of me and of the Father. Again, that's that higher level of blessedness because higher level of belief because you're one step removed. It's faith through the Spirit, not knowledge through sight and sound from the Lord himself. See, this goes back to what he said at the end of chapter 15. People just assumed that the Lord was going to visit the Gentiles too. And he said, no, I never said I would. They would receive not my voice and visitation. They would receive my servants and my spirit. And that seems to be one step removed. No wonder he's saying in chapter 16, 6, that the Gentiles are so blessed because of their belief. Gentiles had to exercise faith in Christ in ways that the house of Israel never did. Maybe that's why they're so perfectly suited to restore faith to the house of Israel now that the voice and visitation is no longer theirs. The last shall be first and the first shall be last, right? So now it's these Lamanites returning to the Nephites to teach. Samuel the Lamanite. Now it's these Gentiles returning to the house of Israel to teach them and to teach them what real faith is all about. You had sight and sound and it wasn't sufficient. We had spirit and servants, and we found that that was enough to fortify our faith. It can be enough for you as well. Come unto Christ. Come to know him. Trust in his servants and seek his spirit, and you'll be prepared for the voice and visitation which will eventually come. But before that knowledge, you can now develop faith, just like we did. Verse 7, Behold, because of their belief in me, saith the Father, and because of the unbelief of you, O house of Israel. See this comparison? One group has faith, the other does not. In the latter days shall the truth come unto the Gentiles, that the fullness of these things shall be made known unto them. I think there's a similar parallel between new converts' belief to lifelong members' lack of belief. It's these Gentiles coming in and, and waking them up, reminding them of things they should have known all along. No wonder that converts are called the lifeblood of the church. It's like Gentiles coming in and infusing the house of Israel with faith that they may have allowed to grow cold. Verse 8, Woe, saith the Father, unto the unbelieving of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles themselves aren't all of equal faith. For notwithstanding they have come forth upon the face of this land, here, the promised land, the explorers, the conquistadores, the, the colonists, all of these people who have come to a land that God had promised to the house of Israel, the tribe of Joseph, those have scattered my people who are of the house of Israel. 
And my people who are of the house of Israel have been cast out from among them and have been trodden under feet by them. Think about how Europeans have treated indigenous populations. Gentiles who were called upon to gather Israel ended up scattering them instead. Some did, at least. And woe unto them, the Lord says. In verse 9, because of the mercies of the Father unto the Gentiles, and also the judgments of the Father upon my people who are of the house of Israel. Verily, verily, I say unto you that after all this, and I have caused my people who are of the house of Israel to be smitten and to be afflicted and to be slain and cast out and hated and become a hiss and a byword among them. This describes the process of the first becoming the last. The house of Israel, God's first chosen people, becoming last in the list, smitten and afflicted and so on. We talk about rags to riches stories. This is more of the riches to rags story. God shifted his attention from the Jews to the Gentiles. That was the mercies unto the Gentiles and the judgments upon the house of Israel. See how that all fits together in verse 9? But be careful, Gentiles. Verse 10, thus commandeth the Father that I should say unto you, at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel, you've had the riches. What have you done with them? Through God's mercies, you were put in a superior position. But remember, the only thing about superiority is to give you some potential energy for your blessings to flow downward to those that are supposedly beneath you. It's all the flow. It's exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. But from your privileged position, you forgot what those privileges were for? To be shared? You dammed the river? You stopped the wind? You kinked the hose? You held to your exclusivity? and never pursued inclusivity? Well, then you never deserve to be in that position in the first place. So in verse 10, at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations, including the house of Israel, above all the people of the whole earth and should be filled with all manner of lyings and deceits and mischiefs and hypocrisy and murders and priestcrafts and whoredoms and secret abominations, if they shall do all these things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, saith the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. And then, verse 11, will I remember my covenant which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them. This is the Nephites forgetting what the gospel was all about, and so God shifts his attention to the Lamanites instead. This is the Gentiles taking for granted their privileged position, and therefore losing it, and God turning to the house of Israel instead. This is, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Riches to rags, and rags back to riches. Verse 12, And I will show unto thee, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles shall not have power over you. I will remember my covenant unto you, O house of Israel, and ye shall come unto the knowledge of the fullness of my gospel. I hope I'm making this clear. In my own notes, this is how I tried to put it down on paper. To you privileged Gentiles who now have open access to the fullness of the gospel and the blessings of God, where much is given, much is required. So if you don't live up to these privileges, if you don't live up to these expectations, if pride and priestcraft, if iniquity and willful ignorance keep you from fulfilling your role as stewards and under-shepherds, then you will lose that privileged place. The times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled, and the focus will shift back to the house of Israel. 
If you only scatter Israel, then Israel will someday scatter you. If you neglect to gather them, then you'll find yourself in a position to need to be gathered yourselves. Now, if that sounds harsh, please read verse 13. If the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. Remember, exclusion is always meant to be in pursuit of inclusion. I'm happy to graft wild branches into my tame olive tree. Just repent and return. I'm still after one fold. I am the one shepherd. The ultimate goal of both rags to riches and riches to rags is that everyone ends up with the riches of eternity. The ultimate goal of first shall be last and last shall be first is eventually for all of us to be first. One fold and one shepherd. But repenting and returning will be required. In 14, I will not suffer my people who are of the house of Israel to go through among them and tread them down, saith the Lord. You see, in 15, if they will not turn unto me and hearken unto my voice, I will suffer them, yea, I will suffer my people, O house of Israel, that they shall go through among them and shall tread them down, and they shall be as salt that hath lost its savor, or snow melt instead of seasoning, like we talked about, which is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden underfoot of my people, O house of Israel. You see the poetic justice here between verse 9 and verse 15? That in 9, it was the Gentiles casting out and hating the house of Israel. In 15, it's the house of Israel casting out and trotting underfoot the Gentiles. And all of that, whichever way you're looking at it, who's on top and who's on bottom, and it switches, Jews, Gentiles, you name it, all of that can be avoided through repentance and returning unto God. There will be no clash between sheep and wolf if there's only sheep, one fold under one shepherd. That was the promise in 14. If the Gentiles repent and return in 13, then I won't suffer my people of the house of Israel to go through and tread them down in 14. Otherwise, 15, which we just read, that's exactly what will happen. Now, 16, verily, verily, I say unto you, thus hath the Father commanded me that I should give unto this people this land for their inheritance. This promised land, the Americas, is still promised to God's chosen people if they'll open the door and choose everyone else. It still has to be exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. And once that happens, verse 17, then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah 52, 8 through 10. The Lord loves Isaiah. Brace yourself. He's going to keep quoting him. But here he says, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. Those are the under-shepherds the gatherers of Israel. They lift up their voice, and with the voice together shall they sing. Can you sense the harmony there? Otherwise, this would be cacophony, every voice going in different directions. No, the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. You sense the unity, the oneness that they finally found, one fold, one shepherd, eye to eye, voice to voice, singing together in harmony. 19, what are they singing? They are breaking forth into joy, singing together. Ye waste places of Jerusalem that have once again blossomed as the rose. And why so joyful? 
because the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. My favorite note in all of Handel's Messiah is the song that puts to music the first verse of Isaiah 40. To me, it's one of the most merciful sounds I've ever heard. You see, Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of the northern kingdom being scattered and the southern kingdom almost being destroyed. At this point, God could have said to Israel, I told you so. It could have been another one of those, but ye would not, and it would have been well-deserved. But what does the Lord say right after all of this destruction and scattering? Isaiah 40, verse 1. Can you hear the tenor? Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. No, I told you so. Just help them feel better. Give them hope. Sing. Break forth into joy. The Lord hath comforted his people. Just hear that note held out, comfort ye. We have to do that for each other. We have to do that for scattered Israel. We need to comfort them as we invite them home. Verse 20, the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. His holy arm is made bare. How oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. The Lord's wings are extended. His arms have been made bare. It's up to us who recognize those arms to invite all the world to seek shelter there. There are other sheep all around us and we who have heard his call and come running are now expected to go out on missions of mercy to gather other lost sheep. We are meant to be onefold. And I pray that we can heed the voice of that one shepherd who is calling everyone to come unto him.